Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. We continue our conversation with Morgan and Lee Grant Irons on everything you wanted to know about the intricacies of terraforming. In short, it's complicated. Morgan is a soil and crop sciences PhD candidate in the Lehman Lab at Cornell University, where her research focuses on microbial adhesion mechanisms and organomineral organo-organic interactions in soil aggregates and their effects on soil organic carbon sequestration under earth gravity and microgravity. Lee Grant Irons is a scientist and engineer with experience in the fields and industries of space plasma and computational physics, nuclear power design and operations, radioactive and hazardous waste management, environmental remediation, and large-scale engineering and construction projects. As the executive director of the nonprofit Norfolk Institute, he is working on the existential challenges of human sustainability on Earth and in space. In part two of our interview, we'll discuss the challenges of conducting research on real and simulated soil samples in space, the long-term goal of creating an independent ecosystem on another planetary body that does not rely on an Earth's supply chain for sustainability, and lessons we can take from sustainable eco-practices on Earth. Finally, we'll consider whether there's any role for genetic modification of humans to address some of the limitations and risks associated with the creation of adaptive, sustainable ecosystems for interplanetary settlement. Wow, that's fascinating. So, first of all, I am floored that we have never actually flown soil in space. That that absolutely astounds me after 50 some odd years in space. Yeah, we've, we've sent some geological substrate. So we've sent sand uh, into space. We've sent human made growth media, for example, what's used in the seed pillows when NASA used seed pillows more than the veggie system um, before the veggie system came about. Uh, so we've sent things like that, but we've never actually sent an intact natural earth soil or biochar into space. And I think one of the reasons is because there's so many microorganisms in soil and it takes a lot to convince a biosafety board that no, the astronauts and the cosmonauts are going to be safe. They're not going to be exposed to the microbiome just in case something uh, evolves to be uh, virulent or a pathogen uh, in some way. So I think one of the hesitations and barriers has been this uncertainty when it comes to microbiology in space. Right. Well, and we certainly know, I mean, there have been a few studies that have done looking at increased virulence of salmonella, for example, and I think Staph aureus and E. coli have been looked at uh, in terms of antibiotic resistance. So it certainly is, I mean, it is a valid question when they're, you know, evaluating 
sending sending these into space. But yeah, fascinating that soil hasn't flown. So a second question then, how do you contain the soil samples? Um, because, you know, I'm immediately imagining once this is exposed to microgravity, you're going to have some degree of separation of the microbes, the other organic material in in that actual soil. So, I mean, that's going to be, that alone, I guess the 3D structural matrix of that is going to be changing in space. And is that important? How can you or can you not control for that? Or is it important to control for that in your experiment? Yeah, great question. Uh, that's where that part of that question is being answered with the aggregation, looking at the aggregation, because that is showing us whether we have an increased clumping, scientific term clumping, of soil, <laughs> minerals, and organic matter into aggregates, or if we're seeing uh, that the lack of the full-on Earth at gravitational force acting on the soil, uh, if that leads to this disaggregation or uh, the breakage of these chemical and organic and physical uh, interactions in the aggregate leading to the minerals separating, the organic matter separating, the microbes separating from their substrates. So we do look at that and One of the things we also look at is some of the samples were compacted, meaning that we put a mesh and glass filter paper into the samples and compacted them down so that we could still have water and airflow uh, throughout the tube, but the soil was held down. Uh, So we had some samples that had that treatment in them and then other samples that didn't have that mesh and that glass filter paper holding the soil down but were at the bottom of the tube instead Uh, and those samples were allowed to free float and allowed the soil to just move throughout uh, the sample containers so with that we were definitely interested in seeing if you have these lower gravity uh environmental conditions uh whether it makes a difference to have your samples compacted or if the structure and the matrix uh changes if it's all free floating uh so those were some things that we are looking at uh in terms of better understanding uh the soil structure and i know that if i'm giving the opportunity again to send more soil into space, there are definitely other questions and different ex- different experiments that I would uh, run with the uh, knowledge that I now have compared to before the experiment. Oh, so do you have results from the ISS uh, experiments? We're, yeah, we are in the process of analyzing all of the data uh, right now, and the plan is to publish uh, the data uh, with the ISS experiment and the Blue Origin parabolic flight in a research journal and also make it open access because I'm very much in support of making sure that research is available to anyone who wants access to it. Right. Yeah. So so regarding that, so she, she gave you a list of, of organizations uh, that were involved in helping fund that. 
Yeah. All of those organizations funneled uh, their money through Norfolk Institute kind of as a, as a bundling organization. But so, some of them were commercial interests. Most of them were not. Um, and they're all also bringing their own, their own labs uh, to do this work and, and with, with, with their own funding sources for their labs. So in general, Norfolk Institute does two kinds of research. One that's, that's going to be fully public open access because the number of funding sources that are coming in are, are so varied and, and a lot of them being public. We need to make that, that research uh, open access also so that the researchers can, can publish. And so that's a lot of the work that we do. And so the agreements that we set up with the funding agencies and both the commercial and non-commercial interests, you know, cover all of that to make sure that it's all going to be open access. And then the other thing that we do is that we have uh, business association type research. Um, fundamentally, we, we operate as a nonprofit. Some of those, like I said, are, are more along the lines of what a 501c3 scientific research organization would do. Um, but we also have an arm that's set up more like a 501c6, where it's a, it's a business association. And, and companies can come in and, and join our committee and work together uh, providing funding to, to research and develop for, for solutions that, that, that everybody needs. And then those businesses can, can take that knowledge that they've helped fund and use them in their own businesses uh, to, to provide additional services to the marketplace. Um, but as I said, Morgan's particular research, it's, it's all been conducted on more like the 501c3 approach, scientific research organization. All of the data from that is, is going to be open access. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, Tom, I'm going to turn it back to you. Okay, getting back to some terminology, uh, one of my favorite uh, novel series is called is the Expanse series, new, new book coming out here in a couple of days. But um, in one of those books, they talk about the idea of a simple, complex system versus a complex, complex system. Is that a term that you use? We did get into some of that terminology in, in our paperwork. So uh, another terminology that can come from systems engineering is basically having systems of systems. Ah, where yes. You're having, where you're having lots of systems working together in a network, if you will. And ultimately, when you're talking terraforming, it's going to be a systems of systems type approach, which is really getting complex. I mean, you're effectively trying to replace all of Earth's functions and trying to get them going again on another planet. Um, that's a very complex solution. And it's going to start off hyper-local initially. Um, in Morgan's patent, she talks about quasi-closed agroecological systems where you have maybe four football fields worth of, of land that's underneath a dome system, if you will, to support just eight people, because that's about how much land you need to support eight people. You could get uh, natural earth functions going in that, uh, but you're also going to need probably some relatively heavy engineered support systems to get that system jump-started and to keep it going. So, and Morgan talks about all of this 
in in her patent, then we can certainly provide a link uh, to for for your podcast. Um, yeah, very cool. So yeah, we we do use do do use some of that kind of language. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The context here was that a system was failing on a planetary on a on a moon that was supporting human life, and uh, they they called it a failure cascade because it didn't have the depth of a purely natural system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that they talk they talk about that in in that um, in that uh, famous uh, book series that's become a TV series. Name is name is escaping me, but yeah. Are you, are you talking about the Dune Dune series or? No, 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 no. Uh, the Expanse. The Expanse. Yes. The Expanse. Okay, got it. And and we talk and we talk about that in our, in our paper, Tom. So in in our paper we go into uh, seven uh, theoretical frameworks that come out of you know, six of them come out of environmental science. One of them comes out of out of uh, systems engineering that we use to provide a sustainability assessment framework for a bioregenerative life support system. And that can be for any bioregenerative life support system, whether it be just like a a system that uses algae to generate oxygen and and absorb carbon dioxide um, in a in a closed loop cycle, if you will. And so that's that's just a single function kind of bioregenerative life support system, maybe about as simple as you could get. And then, you know, that's at one extreme. And then at the other extreme, of course, is a fully terraformed, you know, base on, on Mars that, that provides actual naturally functioning uh, biogeochemical cycles and, and ecosystem services with very little... Uh, engineered uh, support system involvement that's that's at the other extreme and that's ultimately where everybody wants to get right but to get there we have to take the baby steps and what our paper does is it provides what we call a terraform sustainability assessment framework using environmental science theories to be able to measure the sustainability quantify the sustainability of a bioregenerative life support system, whether it be, you know, the one-on-one extreme, the algae system that I talked about, or whether it be a fully terraformed system. And then because there's a property, and maybe Morgan can go into this a little bit more, there's a property known as variance in environmental science where, you know, despite popular conversation that tends, where people tend to say, We've got to keep our environment exactly the same. It can't change, you know. Environments change. That's what they do. Nothing is really unvarying, even in nature. So because of that variance property, and so you kind of have a little bit of a moving target regarding what you're trying to set up in a terraform system, we take those quantified values that we, come, that we get out of our sustainability assessment framework and we normalize them by comparing them to an equivalent Earth system, which is, by definition, already terraformed. And we get a value of these uh, terraform stability properties that are between 0 and 1. And the closer you are to 1, the, the closer you are, theoretically, to being terraformed. Um, so that's the approach that we've taken in this paper. 
it's it's a it's a perspective paper so we haven't fully hashed it all out yet and this is getting into what we're talking about these systems of systems these highly complex environmental systems with some engineering involved like like the moon on the expanse if they're not sustainable and you get a disruption occurs a relatively major disruption occurs if they're not sustainable they're going to go into a cascade failure is is the point and the cascade failure is is that kind of thing that chances are you're not going to recover from it without a whole lot of rework to reset the system up and definitely not in the time frame humans need to be able to survive the the cascade failure in our paper we talk about if you have an oxygen system a bioregenerative life support system that's that's algae based algae is generating oxygen and, and absorbing the carbon dioxide and you have some kind of an alien biovector come through or a mutated earth pathogen come through you could have a 100% die off scenario where both your your main and your redundant lines of algae just all die off in very quick succession then you're then you're talking about being in the middle of space and really only having hours for for rescue it it takes years for biologists to figure out what the heck happened in in these kinds of situations i mean eleanor you know this right i mean this is biology is challenging stuff it's not like it's not like mechanical engineering so bioregenerative life support systems have to the design of them in order to be sustainable have to take into consideration what we would call unplanned events those things that you didn't guess would happen in detail so you have to be able to design a system to kind of like cover yourself for those unplanned events happening um and morgan can can probably uh now pick up the conversation and talk about you know how we do that in in environmental systems using elements such as biodiversity you know because of the i guess the nonlinear aspect of the the risk of a bioregenerative life support system does it make any sense to develop something like that for you know for extended space travel you know i i don't know if it really makes sense curious about your thoughts on that as well go ahead morgan pick it up yeah so it's a bit difficult when we're talking about extended uh, space travel uh, because when we're talking about biogeochemistry in a soil context, uh, soil is very heavy. And of course, like depending on the ship that you have, you're not going to be able to load your ship up with soil. <laughs> so that's where hydroponic systems, aquaponic systems might be more appropriate in a spaceship setting and this is where it becomes tricky because our current technology when it comes to ponic systems aquaponics hydroponics aeroponics they're currently restricted on what plants that they can support uh, a lot of the hydroponics systems that we see here on earth support very high nutritional green plants such as spinach lettuce strawberries things like that you don't really see these systems supporting the high calorie foods such as corn 
rice, potatoes, things like that. Uh, so we have to consider when we're looking at long-term space travel, what plant species will we be able to actively grow in such systems, uh, not only through what the actual system can support uh, with its nutrient cycling, with its nutrient solution, but also the space requirements. Corn takes up a lot of space, and that means that you won't necessarily be able to support corn. So what would be a substitute for corn? Maybe you have to have prepackaged MRE kind of situations. I would have to say that the, the question of long-term space uh, flight, where you're going to be living in a spacecraft for extended periods of time, it's, it's a very complex situation and something that needs to be looked at further, especially when it comes to looking at time scale because how long are you going to be in your in your spacecraft? What's the end goal? Where are you going to end up at? What are the mission requirements? Will you be able to have resupply uh, to your spacecraft? Or is this going to be a craft that will not have a supply chain connected to it? So it's definitely a complicated question in that regard. The, the supply chain from Earth is, is the thing that, that throws the big wrinkle into this. So you can, from an economics theory perspective, do anything in space if you have enough money. But politically, that's untenable for long periods of time. Um, and we all know that. The, the funding cycle of Congress is two years. <laughs> so supply chains, humans use supply chains to take naturally occurring ecosystem services and resources and move them to places where they are not naturally occurring and turn them into things that they don't naturally occur in, and which is a completely valid thing to do. I mean, there are termite mounds on the face of the earth that are basically like human cities. They're big piles of pollution. Uh, but they're naturally occurring, done by, done by termites. Humans do the same thing. Humans are naturally occurring on the earth. Humans are part of the ecosystem. And we do stuff. We make artificial things that artificial is a term of art that we use, but really because we're naturally occurring, then the things that we make are kind of naturally occurring, if you think about it that way. We're taking resources from the earth and, and services that the earth would provide us if we were just a hunter-gatherer society moving around in nomadic tribes still. We're no longer doing that. We're settling in place. We're pushing human populations all over the place, and we're taking natural resources, and we're moving them everywhere, and we're processing them in, into these manufactured goods. That, that supply chain that does that, is part of the ecosystem services. It's, a, it's, it's an extension of these ecosystem services. And on Earth, we've made our supply chains extremely efficient, which unfortunately means they're also highly susceptible to disruption, as we saw with COVID-19. Anybody walking into any grocery store a month and a half, you know, after 
March 1st, you saw that the supply chains were failing. So you look at the, the winter vortex and the cold spell that came down into Texas uh, last year and the impact that it had on its water system, on its energy system, on its supply chains, a highly efficient system, very unsustainable. As, as reflected by that just single, that single event disruption of the, of the winter weather. Now, you take that supply chain and you extend that, you know, halfway to Mars out into space or, you know, all the way to Mars with putting a Mars colony there, and you make that colony dependent upon the Earth ecosystem services that are extended by supply chains to Mars, in what would be presumably as efficient of a supply chain as we could possibly get, it's going to be highly susceptible to disruption. And that's the real weak link with any bioregenerative life support system that's as simple as just generating oxygen or as complex as providing all the possible ecosystem services you could provide to humans. If you require that system to be supported with supply chains from Earth, it is not going to be that sustainable just because of the disruption risks on the supply chain part of it, uh, on the on the space supply chain part of it. And we talk about that in more in more detail uh, in our paper. I thought that was really neat how you brought that to a a modern day link with the uh, supply chain and the uh, and the issue in Texas. I, I enjoyed that in the paper. Yeah, I mean, Texas, their energy system is isolated. They purposefully do not have their electric grid connected to states uh, bordering Texas. That was a purposeful decision, and you saw what it got them. Yeah, I actually just, uh, a colleague of mine who lives in Texas, where you said the locals down there referred to it as Snowvid. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, it's sad, and it's sad because humans... It's sad because humans died, right? But that this That's is right. happening every day around the world, and we're on Earth for crying out loud. Now you take that out into space, yeah, and you have, you know, a meteorite impact, even if it's a pinhole, just penetrating your dome, or some, you know, alien bio vector. I mean, if anybody, any Doctor Who fans out there. Remember the show, uh, the particular episode, The Waters of Mars? Some alien biovector frozen in, in, in the water in Mars. Now the humans start using that water and it comes into their, into their environment. And now suddenly you have a biological problem that on Earth it would take scientists years to figure out. On Mars you don't have years. You have hours. This is why ultimately we say in our paper that... Any human life that goes out into space is going to continue to be tethered to Earth through supply chains and tethered to the ecosystem services on Earth through supply chains and the soil basis of Earth that continues to make Earth function and continues to support humans everywhere in space until you're actually able to terraform the location where the humans are and cut off the need for supply chains from Earth. At which point, then you become dependent upon that terraformed location to be your soil basis and your biogeochemical cycle basis 
and your ecosystem service bases, and which then will continue to be susceptible to excessive human loading and disruptive events, just like what we have here on Earth. Well, that actually raises a couple other questions in my mind. You know, we have all these challenges with the supply chain and trying to mimic the Earth uh, on another planet, but, you know, why bother terraforming at all? Why not just genetically engineer humans such that they would be adapted to whatever environment they're going to travel to? Another question is why not consider, I don't know, synthetically engineering microbes that would, that would adapt to that environment. So you're really creating a, a true Mars earth environment as opposed to an earth earth environment reproduced elsewhere. Well, ultimately, what should happen is that as you develop your habitation system on another planet, you want it to, over time, evolve into a unique, i.e. Martian ecology, because that will ultimately also help you uh, maintain your sustainability of your system, because if your system is heavily reliant on maintaining Earth-like conditions at all times, then again, you're becoming extremely reliant on your engineered system to maintain those conditions, which again connects you back to uh, a supply chain, uh, in this case, supplying back uh, to Earth where you need engineered parts to be replaced uh, unless you can figure out a way to engineer those parts and supply those charts from location. You want to, at the beginning, potentially have a system that is more Earth-like, um, but over time allow it to evolve. And this is also interesting where we have to keep in mind with these systems that there is a food culture to look at with with like where your crew's coming from, but also the habitat of the plants that you're choosing. So for a lot of us who grew up in the United States, we have this food culture that we grew up in uh, that we're very much partial to. Uh, but maybe our food culture isn't the adaptive way to uh, have an agricultural system on Mars. Uh, an example of what we could do instead is look at other places on Earth that have similar environmental features to what we would find on Mars. So places that have more extreme soil conditions, that have lower atmospheric pressure, uh, that uh, have more desert-like conditions as well. So maybe we, instead of having potatoes, the yellow potatoes that we get from here in the United States, we look at the purple Peruvian potatoes that you find in the Andes uh, up on the mountains, because those potatoes would have already had an evolutionary process that makes them more adapted to that ex more extreme condition. So you have to think about environments here on Earth that already have these similar characteristics where some of that evolutionary process has already happened. And so 
yes, some genetic engineering will likely need to be involved, especially when it comes to potential solar radiation uh, protection and the like when it comes to plants. And that's something that uh, food scientists, agricultural agronomists are already working on is especially in uh, communities, for communities that are in extreme and changing environments due to climate change. Uh, how can you genetically modify plants that are able to grow in these more extreme and changing environments and be able to provide you with the nutrition and the calories that you need. So there's already conversations happening here on Earth that are very much applicable uh, to uh, what we will need to consider for space. But we also have to make sure that we're thinking about this in a more international viewpoint as well and not hide ourselves in the corner of, i.e., what we have in the United States since I'm based in the United States. But we need to look at food cultures around the world. We need to look at traditional agricultural systems. We need to look at uh, the practices of indigenous communities that truly understood how to live within the environment and the resources that they had and create these sustainable agricultural systems. Uh, and this is something that I am very much uh, dedicated to is making sure that when we approach the development of these systems and use modern day science and do experiments, that we're also looking back at our history, not only to make sure we don't repeat the same mistakes that we've made and make sure we don't take on these uh, colonist uh, characteristics that we've seen usually don't lead to good circumstances, but that we look at communities and people who very much understand how to live sustainably in these different potentially extreme environments with very little resources, very little supply chain in and out of their communities and talk with them and get them involved and respectfully bring forward their knowledge and experience because they've been experimenting for hundreds and thousands of years uh, in these systems. And so there's a lot to learn when it comes to how can we create an adaptive, sustainable system on another planet and combine that with our understanding of the science of why these systems have worked for so long and how we can bring that forward into uh, space habitation. Thanks for listening. We'll continue our interview with Morgan and Lee Grant Irons in our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.